welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Grossman. We are going to be over the next hour, uh, going to be dissecting the latest research to emerge from the field of wisdom research and discussing what it might mean for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the strange days that we find ourselves. So I wanted to begin with a very brief quote that I was just texted uh, by my sister, which is from Oscar Wilde. It says, with age comes wisdom, but sometimes age comes alone, which I think leads us nicely into today's episode. So Igor, thoughts? Oh, man. <laughs> you know, there's a funny thing about this adage uh, that you just said. Uh, I've been using it quite often in my research whenever I try to think about uh, or motivate uh, uh, people like to study the, uh, the topic of wisdom and right. aging. And it, it turns to me like, it's like, who talks like that <laughs> these days? And it's like kind of an interesting point because, you know, like maybe it comes from the time when people were thinking about whether wisdom is uh, related to aging. And nowadays, maybe that's not the case. So I think that would be a really interesting thing to discuss. Yeah. But like, let me ask you this question. It's like, so what do you think, like, uh, when you think of a wise person, mm. whom do you think of, Charles? I think if I, if someone says think of someone wise, I think of white hair generally, um, probably a man, uh, older and a bit craggly around the face. Um, I don't really think of probably anyone in my own life. So yeah, those, those are the kind of things that spring immediately to mind. You're sort of someone like Gandalf, I suppose, is probably the, the first kind of image that springs to mind. So, so not, not Yoda. Yoda, yeah, I'm not really a Star Wars fan, to be honest. Not much okay, of it. Okay. Yeah, so I would probably say I'm going to paint myself into a corner as a, as a Tolkien fan. That's not what I mean either. But um, yeah, I'm thinking wizardy people with long white beards. Gotcha. I mean, do you know that there's a new uh, version of Gandalf coming out in this Fantastic Beasts 2 or something like uh, that? Mm -hmm. So he will be younger. That will break your stereotype. Oh, no, that's going to really confuse me. I, think, I reckon he was <laughs> probably right. quite wise when he was younger because he's a special case. Well, I don't know. Jude Law is supposed to play him. Oh, so no. Who knows? What, I really who knows don't what like happens? Jude Law. This is going to cause <laughs> some massive dissonance for me. Oh, I don't know. Just, um, thank you for giving me the heads up because I can uh, bury myself away for the next 12 months until right. the But that's okay. That, that's an important question, right? So, like, when we think of uh, wisdom, we think of older adults. And, and then the question is why is that the case? And so, that's what I think we want to really address today. Is there a relationship between wisdom and aging or not? And under what conditions could there be a relationship? So what can science tell us about that question? So where should we start? Maybe. Uh, yeah, um, I, I think um, it's, an, it's an, you know, you asked me that question and automatically I think of the sort of classic archetype of the wise old wizard. Um, but it's something that I found when, you know, I tell people that I'm, looking into the science of wisdom is is one of the most commonly held ideas that as you get older you get wiser and it would be interesting to ask ourselves before we look at the science on that where is that coming from um is it just i don't know is it just arrogance of old people or is it something that we find comforting as an idea do you have any thoughts about where's this i'm not calling it a myth yet because we haven't looked at the data but what, where does this belief come from could be many things, of course, uh, but 
what I find really appealing about this is this uh, uh, idea is like, what if we are just really wrong about uh, how we uh, think about this question? And uh, maybe there, there are some beliefs that uh, our grand-grand-grandfathers uh, um, held because uh, you know people didn't live that long. Mm. Uh, at that time, and uh, the older person was the one who was, let's say, 40. And uh, there you are sort of at the peak of your level. You you learn something in your life, and you uh, you still don't um, experience the uh, losses in memory or uh, physical losses. And so those people that are the older, and uh, they are the wiser because they also have the power. They're in a higher power position, mm. and uh, and maybe like that's how this the Smith was formed. I was thinking of some uh, either powerful uh, um, person in 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 the immediate circle, or think about the the king or whatever in the Middle Ages, mm. and um, maybe that's where the ideas come from. Mm. And now we try to transport. We mm. transplanted them and I tried to adopt them nowadays. Um, and uh, it doesn't work quite like that because we live in a very different yeah. society. Like we don't live uh, on average. Our life expectancy is uh, much higher than it mm. was uh, two or 300 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and particularly like 400 years ago. I think this kind of stereotypes uh, that is represented in this adage are a bit older. Yeah, you know, as well... I th- that's interesting you talk about kings because wisdom often is exhibited through being a decision maker of some importance and you know it takes it takes a number of years to work your way into a position of authority where you might be a leader and therefore could demonstrate decisions which could be considered wise you know so perhaps that's part of it's just like a career arc kind of framework as well yeah, right. I mean, but the main issue that I see is really that um, we simply don't know uh, with these uh, myth and uh, uh, stereotypes or archetypes if they're based on uh, uh, current reality or if they're based on some some folk uh, and fairy tales uh, that are much older uh, and do not really reflect uh, the, the the current reality that we live in. So that's my 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 key concern with this adage. Yeah. With uh, with age comes wisdom. And there's also this um, very human element to it that you know science is done by humans, and it it's possible to imagine a scenario where the scientists are you know with the best will in the world you know hoping that as they get older they have wisdom to look forward to. So it's that's important to try and extract that perhaps from the process as well and then of course charles are you uh, are you accusing scientists of being a human and fallible to um, human i would never say scientists were human that would be ridiculous um but but also you know we've got an aging population so there is on a kind of epidemiological level it's like this we you know we're really interested in things which could be beneficial um if we have more old people around, what are the, the kind of attributes that we can look forward to? Is there anything, fingers crossed, please, Lord, that we can find that that um, that could be beneficial for, uh, when we have this aging population on our hands? Uh, yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's to some extent, a cynical way to think about it, of mm. course, because it suggests that maybe people start looking more uh, for 
uh, positive aspects of aging because the population is aging. And so we need to tell the population, yeah. look, actually some things are getting better. Maybe you're getting wiser. Maybe um, not cynical. It's just practical. It's like if we're going to have, you know, we're going to have an inverted V, well, not an inverted V, a V, um, with, with more older people around, perhaps we need to start seeking things which we can tap uh, in this population. So it's not right. necessarily cynical. It's just, you know, I, I don't consider myself a cynic, um, but it's, it could just, it's practical. You know, we need to know more about the positive aspects of, of an older population. Yeah, but but why does it have to be wisdom? Why not like you know just feeling content, to being the mm. happy old geezer or something like that? <laughs> like you know, geezer has a, a completely different meaning in the UK. Oh my gosh! What no, did it's they not just rude. Say? It's not rude. Don't worry. But okay. it, it means like a geezer means a young, like lad who's a bit of a kind of a bit of an an alpha male who kind of like walks around with a big swagger, like he owns the place. Def- and oh you- gosh! Yeah, so, so it's, it's like a, so it's an oxymoron then. Yeah, in, completely. In yeah. British English. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, so, but but you're right. Why would it be wisdom that we necessarily um, look for in old people? I don't know. Probably because it then comes back to that earlier and earlier sort of commonly held belief. So we're kind of back to square one, aren't we? Yeah, to some extent. I mean. And the key question here, of course, is, is this idea that uh, wisdom comes with old age, does, does it stand for aging or does it stand for something else? And so quite often in aging research or when you think about aging, you actually use the term age as a proxy for something entirely different. For instance, experience. Right? Like, and I think uh, quite often when you think about wisdom um, and uh, its relationship to aging, we actually talk about the role of experience uh, for, uh, for wisdom, which is a, a completely different question and avoids this uh, whole discussion of possible declines. So I think we can return to it later. Mm. Um, so it's this idea that when, we, when we're saying aging, really, we mean typically older people have more experience and it's the experience which is potentially leading to wisdom rather than necessary just chronologically ticking along sitting in your house just getting older and assuming you're getting wiser even though you're not accumulating any experiences right i mean i think that uh, when we think about uh, aging uh, the the key things uh, uh, with regard to wisdom or other type of sort of like uh, uh, decision making process or even emotion regulation uh, that are positive those are experience-based. So well, that uh, raises a very interesting question, which is, um, well, under what condition? Well, first of all, does any type of experience lead to wisdom then? Right. Or, or, and of course, of course uh, the answer to that seems to be no, that seems too simple. Um, so it's not like that, you know, you just go on the street and you walk every day the same route and 20 years later, suddenly you're wise. Boom. Uh, no, something that 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 does something doesn't add up there. No, that doesn't so sound right. Does, yeah, right. So you you probably let, let, let's take that example. Uh, instead of walking on the street, you you board on a plane, go to a war zone in a in a in another country, uh, try to help the the people who are suffering there, mm-hmm. and maybe twenty years later you will get wise, possibly if you're still alive. But that's an interesting uh, comparison because you know that that suggests that there's certain. There's mm. a certain role of uh, uh, difficult experiences, possibly, mm. Mm. that you need to accumulate wisdom. Uh, and uh, it's not like that anybody who is going into the war zone mm. 
would uh, would be wise either because a lot of people get traumatized and uh, they right. come back and they they cannot really um, uh, cope with the even simple simplest aspects of normal life. Yeah, so this is you hear PTSD on the one hand, and then you hear post traumatic growth on the other hand. So there, it's not right. the in it's not embedded. The lessons aren't embedded in the experience themselves. This would suggest it's some sort of interaction between that experience and something about. I don't know, the makeup of that person that has the experience, perhaps. Right. And then there's also, of course, the question if uh, if it's really something that uh, you need a long period of time um, to work through this experience uh, to gain uh, some form of wisdom. And that by itself is also quite fascinating because it raises the question, well, can young people, for instance, be wise? Right. Or do you really have to have been like the, now we're going back to aging? Like, or do you have to be old? Like, because young people certainly also have some experience. Middle-aged people have some experiences. Mm. And um, so like this kind of... Um, it's complicated, isn't it? <laughs> so, so we're saying it seems like that age, it's chronological age, might be a sort of a, a a confounder or something. Really, we're talking about perhaps experience, but experience plus the way experiences are processed. So, do we know about any kinds of experiences that do lead to wisdom? I mean, that's definitely a new episode, but just briefly. Uh, there is, of course, some evidence. It may not be very good. Depends on, you know, how you look at this data, uh, the research. Uh, there are some limitations of that research, uh, but it does suggest that uh, a, a lot of people do grow from the report, growing, developing greater sense of meaning uh, from various experiences, uh, traumatic experiences they had. So, but there is a role then of these traumatic experiences, where uh, you sort of like uh, expose yourself to a greater risk. Now, I'm not recommending now, like, if you want to get wisdom, please go <laughs> yeah. and do something Seek out real trauma. risky. Yeah, so that, and that's sort of the problem with that research because it's all retrospective. So you can't yeah. really draw strong inferences from it. And also, I'm because. Yeah, sorry, I just imagine asking people about whether they feel that a traumatic experience has been beneficial. You know, they're motivated sometimes to find some way of making it, you know, um, Okay, so you would right. need to sort of actually see whether they are genuinely wiser in some way rather than asking them how they feel about it. <laughs> That's right. And there is, of course, an issue, right? Like a particular, we talked about sort of the cultural factors earlier, sort of under what circumstances does this idea that age and wisdom are related develop? Yeah. But you can also, like in our culture, uh, both in Europe and in North America, we have this strong ethos of, you know, overcoming challenges and mm. growing from it, mm. that something positive happens. It's mm. like a lot of, like in the Christian, certainly tradition, mm. uh, there's quite a bit of that. And so it may be that, you know, people are then asked, did you grow uh, after you had a, a traumatic experiences? I said, of course I did. Well, I, and you didn't, uh, but you, you just don't know. And so you answer with this kind of cultural scripts, these yeah. ideas that, uh, well, sounds like the right thing to say. Yeah. So let me say it now. And also it has, um, it's almost like it's, um, you're giving yourself some compensation for the negative experience rather than just going, that was a bad experience and nothing good came from it. It's like, well, that was right. a bad experience, but at least I can offset it by the wisdom I've supposedly gained as, as a consequence. Yeah, so I find like another approach, like another type of experiences that you can sort of look at, some maybe more mundane, but at the same time, 
mm. like for me, very meaningful uh, are the experiences where you adopt a certain role. Uh, for instance, you can be a mentor to somebody or uh, you're in a particular position, in a leadership position. And so there is some emerging work suggesting that if you're in a leadership position, over time you may be developing wisdom. Now, again, it's based on this kind of retrospective reports. Like, did you develop wisdom? Yes, sure, yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but so, so there's a lot of limitations there. But I think the idea that, you know, like if you, if you are put in a particular situation, in a particular role, uh, that uh, you, the way you start thinking about the situation shifts uh, is certainly appealing, and we'll, we'll, uh, we may want to talk about that later. But I think there are certain processes that get activated when you, a psychological process that get activated when you start thinking about others and caring for others, except for just for yourself, uh, that may put you on a path for wisdom and help you to work through the experiences in a wiser fashion. Right. So. Is is the implication there that a leader, um, by the definition of their position, they have to consider the perspectives of a greater number of people, their employees, their stakeholders, etc. Is that the kind of idea? Well, I love the word stakeholder. Still don't know what that means, but uh, yeah, I, I think people, think people should... who have skin in the game. That's, what, <laughs> I that's how I, I which which is a better phrase than stakeholders. Maybe we use that from that's now. right. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, like a lot of people use stakeholders in academia. It's like it's all about stakeholders. It sounds now. like uh, about, uh, commercialized academics. Maybe uh, um, or, or vampire hunters. Oh, that that's right. Uh, no, but uh, yeah, I I I think with leadership uh, is a bit tricky, of course, because there are all sorts of leaders, and uh, you know, you can be a dictator and be a leader. You can be a benevolent dictator and be a great leader, uh, or you can be a democratically elected uh, uh, head of state with all checks and balances mm. where you actually cannot do everything you want. Mm. And, and, and I think um, the different types of competences probably emerge when you are a dictator than when you are a, a, an elected president, say, instead of, say, a prime minister. Uh, so those would be um, my take on it. Would be I wouldn't say that uh, you, we could just say uh, leadership in general. I think it's like the specialized, uh, the different experiences uh, that the different fields uh, lead to different competences, and then in that field maybe you will develop something like wisdom. You would be more likely to maybe, for instance, start taking perspectives of different people mm. because you learn that if you don't do that, that's kind of stupid, and you. Mm. make mistakes or uh, take more time reflecting on an issue. But that, w uh, that would be constrained to the domain in which you develop the expertise. And then the okay. key question is, can you sort of generalize to another domain? Yeah. And the answer from a lot of research is, unfortunately, no. Oh, so at least it's very, very hard. Oh. Yeah, like you can be very, very uh, wise uh, uh, in one domain. Let's say like political domain. And then when you look at your personal life, there is not much wisdom there. And then you look at a lot of politicians, that's often the case. And it, it doesn't have to be even politicians. In I think in, in the uh, work setting, you also see that maybe a person can develop certain expertise, yeah. uh, interpersonal expertise in one domain, but not be able to apply it to another domain. Yeah, I mean, this sounds like if, if, you, um, if you think of expertise, like wisdom as a topic, you know, expertise in solving tricky problems, you know, to speak very loosely. Um, you can imagine it takes a huge amount of practice at 
to, you know, if you're presented with many, 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 many problems, then you have a greater chance of developing expertise in solving those problems. You know, so this kind of 10,000 idea, hours idea might apply to playing the violin doesn't necessarily transfer to playing the piano. You know, you've practiced a specific skill in a specific context uh, multiple times and that's led, led, led to some sort of expertise. So it sort of makes sense to me that you could be fantastic at... Um, I don't know, managing a small business, but that wouldn't necessarily apply to the kinds of complex problems that you face with managing a slightly larger business. So it, it kind of feels right that it, it would be domain specific if you think about it as expertise. Yeah, really, it feels right, except mm. that, of course, it's very appealing to think, well, this is a leader, this is a wise person. And so they start generalizing, from, oh, that's a wise person. Of course, you'll be wise in this other domain. Then you suddenly see, that he or she is actually not that wise in that yeah. domain. Let's say like a, a leader uh, uh, who whom you greatly admire, a politician who is greatly admired, turns out to be a really sucky dad. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, it's that's actually, yeah. yeah, very disappointing. Yeah, I guess because we're attached to this idea that there are wise people out there. Right, right. But then sort of like in terms of developing wisdom also, then you, it has direct implications. Like, how do you develop wisdom? Like, well, through experience. Okay, let me get, like, if I want to have wisdom, I want to have experience. It turns out it's more complicated. Depends on the type of domain. Yeah. Or de depends on the domain. Um, different types of experiences may be necessary yeah. for developing wisdom in that domain. Yeah, and you can you, just generalize. Yeah, you think about, you, as sort of shorthand the kind of lay idea there i suppose is when people talk about someone who's had a rich life you know they're saying they have had lots of experiences in many many domains so um they may well have gleaned a broad selection of lessons from lots of different domains you know so i think that's what people are getting at when they talk about oh he's lived a very rich life it talks about there's getting at variety aren't there so sort of right. saying it's a non-specifically domain related kind of life experience that they've built up but um i wanted to get onto some numbers i wanted to actually you know we're talking about hard science here so what um having had a look at the the papers and the, and the research on this um what what's sort of coming out what what do we know about this in terms of you know this this area looking at age and wisdom is something people have been interested in for two or three decades now so what do we know about it well, I think if we, one thing that we need to start with is the idea of uh, how um, cognitive abilities and emotion regulation abilities change as a function of aging. And that's certainly something that has been studied even before uh, behavioral scientists became interested in the topic of wisdom per se. And what we know from that research is that anybody who is over 25 is already on a path to decline in their sort of efficiency of processing information. So, Charles, 25. bad news for you. Oh. 25, bad Eagle, news you for you and I. You are full of bad news today. Uh, well, that's just the way that, <laughs> the way the world works. It's okay. full of bad news. It's just like, embrace them. That's just okay, some wisdom in that. Yeah, okay. Uh, no, but yeah, no, it's, uh, so over 25 years on average, I mean, the individual differences, Charles, you may be an exception. Dang, I could be exceptionally I foolish. Exceptionally foolish. But I'm here talking just about being smart, right? Like or being able to very quickly make snap judgments or decisions. Not really snap judgments has a negative connotation. But like may make decisions, like process information mm. efficiently, solve puzzles, for instance, right? Like how quickly can you solve a moderately difficult puzzle? And sort of like uh, 
People over 25 become less and less efficient in that. And when you get to old age, like, you know, there are different ways to define it, but let's put a number, let's say 65 when you retire. Good. In many countries, so, yeah, that's when you retire. Let's kick it a couple, a couple of decades into the future. That's a good idea. That's where, of course, you'll be even less efficient in solving uh, uh, puzzles where you just need to think about them very, very quickly and uh, find a solution, uh, uh, sort of almost an algorithmic solution. But then there are other things uh, that turns out that don't really follow this path. So, for instance, uh, your memory uh, for a vocabulary. Right. So uh, you're talking about fluid, fluid intelligence and i've heard fluid intelligence being defined as this what you're talking about before you know solving abstract problems and then this other kind being crystallized more knowledge-based is that the idea yeah yeah Yeah. so this is uh, the uh, distinction that some um, uh, scientists use uh, where uh, fluid intelligence is kind of this quick and efficient processing Mm. of information like some people call it also a related term to it it's not the same thing related term would be executive functioning Uh, uh, that's the one that of course you have a decline starting in the 20s and uh, unfortunately but the good news is that like for things like uh, memory for words or just having a rich and a defined vocabulary or understanding how the world works. Like what are the things that happen in the world and why do we do those things? If you, uh, if you do tests on those type of uh, abilities, then you see that the performance of uh, older adults is not necessarily lower uh, than the performance of middle-aged adults. And in fact, there is a, uh, an increase between the uh, being in the 20s and being in the 30s. So your vocabulary is still improving yeah. and so on and so forth. I mean, assuming you're like reading newspapers sure. and not you've living You've had in more the... time to, to collate exactly. more information, right? So you've got a bigger yeah, stock so, to pull from, yeah. Yeah, so from that perspective, there is like a, mm. a dissociation. Uh, but um, now the question is, how does it apply to wisdom? And uh, it's a really interesting question because, uh, well, it depends on what you think is more important for wisdom. Is this kind of fluid ability, this uh, ability to efficiently process information, um, or is it uh, more uh, about understanding the world around you and like processes that help you understand the world around you that go beyond just uh, acquiring knowledge. Right? And, uh, and the answer to that question is we don't know entirely yet mm. because uh, almost all the research that was done on this uh, involves uh, just comparison of different age groups. And what happens when you compare different age groups is that you never know whether any differences that you may or may not find uh, because of aging or because you sample people who grew up in different eras. So like, you know, you compare like baby boomers to the current generation, to the millennials or something like that. And um, well, there's there different value systems, yeah. and they they would think about different things as more important, and they exercise um, uh, different um, moral virtues to a different extent, and that of course has implications for their performance on anything that would be wisdom related. Yeah, I mean that uh, sounds perspective taking. Yeah. it sounds like. Um it doesn't sound like great science in that sense because you normally need ideally to just have one variable changing and they're sort of fingers crossed hope it hope you know hoping it's the age but in fact there's hundreds and hundreds of different things that are that are different and have changed between those different groups not just the age 
Yeah, well, the, the, the tricky part is uh, that when you study aging and you want ideally to do a so-called longitudinal study to look at them over time, over a long period of time, well, you need to kind of be a genius in developing a method that will still be viewed as scientifically found in 20 or 30 years, <laughs> yeah, right? That's almost so, impossible so, with the rate. Yeah, right. Like, about, so, yeah. That's right. That's right. So that's why, um, like, let's say the wisdom research is just starting or started, let's say, 20 years ago. But then uh, we, we can't talk about any longitudinal studies because only now we start to develop some measures that are a little bit more robust. And that, that means that if you start longitudinal, uh, some longitudinal work, tracking people over time and how they change with age, it will take us at least 20, 30 years before we have that evidence. So everything that we have, we can only speak uh, uh, concerning wisdom and aging. Uh, we can only speak in terms of this kind of comparison of different age cohorts. Now, one thing I did mention, though, is that that evidence by itself is contradictory. So there is some work that suggests there is no difference. There is some work that suggests that there is a little bit of an improvement, particularly when you deal with tasks of somebody else. But it's only, let's say, in the United States and not in Japan okay. or not in Germany. And there is some work that suggests there is some kind of a U-shaped relationship. So younger and older adults are better than middle-aged adults. Mm -hmm. So it goes like all over the place. Right. But as I said, like it's kind of dissatisfactory because we don't really have the proper tools to evaluate this question. And yeah. then the, the question is like, do we need to if we really talk about experience instead oh, of I aging? See. So what se. you're saying is if, if, if we can agree or it seems to make sense that it's it's not really aging that we're discussing here is experience, then you can sidestep that whole issue. Well, to an extent, right? Mm. I mean, uh, to an extent you can sidestep, but you can still have to account for the fact that there is an obvious decline in your cognitive abilities that happens uh, over the course of one's life. Uh, even if one tries really, really hard to be super fit, one will not be on the same level as one was probably in the 20s uh, in terms of, you know, like, processing information. Yeah. And that has implications. There are losses. I mean, there are physical losses, how we uh, look, what we uh, uh, like, um, uh, the muscles, uh, our cognitive abilities. But then there are also gains, right? Because you, uh, you also learn something, hopefully. Uh, ideally, you would, I mean, I think people evolved not to go the same route all the time. So, I mean, like, I mean, there are individual differences. But for instance, when I go to work, uh, I, I want to have a reliable work uh, route when I go to work. But if I have time, I will always want to seek some other ways to get to work. It's like, because like, I, I'm kind of curious. I'm exploring, right? Mm. And so, like, this kind of exploratory patterns uh, that may happen early in life, maybe older adults don't do it. But by the time you get older, you develop certain experiences. So you have this... A losses, this cognitive losses that happen, and then you have certain gains, or like be it in experience, uh, or maybe in how you traumatic experiences, how you have lived your life, and maybe experienced various losses. And also, when you get older, a lot of your friends probably uh, will not be there anymore. Like now, this is a very bleak picture, <laughs> and we will talk about that uh, next week okay. about death. Uh, but to some extent, it is also uh, an interpersonal loss where you start losing people, right? Mm. And so, like, how do you balance that? And um, and that to some extent, uh, um, I think a lot of people when they take, talk about wisdom, they start uh, they, they talk about this notion of balancing this kind of gains in the 
in the periods of losses? Or where can you see gains when you actually are losing it, so to say? So would, would this – so if we're saying you gain certain things that contribute to wisdom might increase and certain things that contribute or components of wisdom might decrease, would that – is this way of looking at it, does that explain why different research might um, reveal different patterns because they're looking at slightly different components of wisdom? Oh, that's for sure. I, I, I think that would be one of the key – uh, reasons why uh, some of the researchers cannot agree on a common definition of wisdom in the first place because mm. they have their pet theory and uh, and I think they're both uh, like that, that there is an approach where you that you can take which would be trying to understand the niches the nuanced environments that people live in uh, in different um, countries in the, uh, of different age and what does wisdom mean to them, for instance. But there is another approach that is kind of like what is sort of like the underlying universal feature. And I think uh, sometimes some scholars confuse those two. They take, actually do the first one where they are studying particular niche, but they really want to claim that that's the underlying uh, universal process. And so and that's where it comes mm. in conflict. But I think I, I think both emotions and sort of like uh, certainly cognitive processes are important and uh, are often viewed, actually, if you even ask lay people on the street to be the fundamental components of wisdom. So um, it seems that seems pretty clear, actually, that it makes sense. It's, wisdom isn't one thing. It you know, has lots of uh, aspects to it. So why would all of those aspects follow a nice neat relationship between even you know aging all the accumulation of experience it makes sense that different things might move in different directions you can even imagine a scenario where things move equally in different directions and therefore cumulatively you get zero you know results because some things are in increasing some things are decreasing and then you're seeing no effect in a combined fashion see what i mean yeah yeah um so the when we first started talking about this idea of aging and wisdom, um, we would, we mentioned this model. We haven't spoken about it today, but I wanted to speak about it a little now. This um, this uh, Ericsson model, where he has these eight different stages of development, and I came across it a while back because it, it in his model it seems that wisdom is the sort of what is um, achieved if the eighth, eighth stage of uh, life development is successfully navigated. Um, it's something about um, successfully integrating or um, integrity and despair. Now, that sounds quite confusing and quite abstract. Could you, um, I don't know, break that down a little bit for me? Uh, because yeah. I've gone back to it lots of times and I love the idea that you know, I'm really interested in wisdom. I love the fact that someone's come up with a model where the final peak stage is wisdom. Um, but I've never really got my head around what he's getting at when he's talking about integrity and despair. Um, and is this something we can relate to in our own lives? Because it's quite abstract for me. Yeah, so uh, Erickson, he was that was a developmental psychologist from mm -hmm. the 20th century who was a student of Sigmund Freud. And in many ways, he followed Freud's theorizing about various sort of forces standing in contrast 
with each other and sort of like in conflict with each other. And then you sort of overcome them and then you move on to the next phase in your life. So there were like stages. Like, uh, Freud had stages in his theory of development and so did Erickson have stages. And he had like more stages than Freud because he you know, focused not only on childhood and various sexual desires that we may be suppressing, uh, but also on people, on things that people may be experiencing and have to grapple with in different parts of their lives. So like the wisdom uh, idea. Um, so just to that, interrupt there for a second, was, yeah. was Freud, did he not sort of worry then too much about what happens to adults once they're fully grown? Was he sort of more interested in just let's look at what happens until you're an adult and then after that there's no development? Is, was that where he stopped? Well, I'm, I would not say that he would have stopped, but for him, uh, the, the earlier uh, experiences were much more important than the later right, experiences. Right. Okay. Um, uh, right, so like, and I think uh, uh, Erickson's contribution was to sort of expand that. And instead of viewing everything in the childhood, he still played a uh, heavy emphasis, uh, put a heavy emphasis on the childhood. Uh, but uh, he also tried to figure out what would be the stages later in your life that you have to grapple with. Which Freud would have never considered, but right. I'm not a specialist on Freud or Erickson, uh, except that, uh, like you, I've been very interested in this notion of generativity, which is mm. basically the idea that when you when you get older and you you get in the position where you can mentor others or where you can where you feel like you have children, then they grow up, and now you. You try to think about like, well, what can I contribute to the next generation? So that's what generativity is about, like the feeling that you want to contribute, pass on knowledge, uh, experience to the next generation. And how does that help you? Because like at the same time, you're struggling with the losses. You're struggling with this uh, cognitive decline. So you may not look the same way as you looked before. Health uh, issues may be coming up. So you may um, get sort of the sense of despair. Right. Um, and uh, I think to some extent, this orientation towards sort of teaching others and helping them and passing on knowledge, which is what he meant with generativity, hmm. uh, is the path to wisdom. So for him, that's sort of that's the link. That's like overcoming this uh, fight between uh, integrity uh, and uh, despair. Uh, that's what he called it. Uh, would uh, would be uh, the path to wisdom, exactly. and and it happens uh, it happens because you sort of become more generative. Is is it? I might be. I think, oh, it's turning out. It's turning out that I'm sounding quite cynical about a lot of these things, which is a surprise to me. But could that be interpreted? You know, the idea that you start to look at ways that you could contribute to people of the next generation. Could couldn't that be a sort of ego-driven, you know, you're motivated to, you're, you're no longer, you're soon you're going to be no longer of this world and you're beginning to look at how your impact can continue into the, into the future. That, that sounds quite cynical, right. I suppose, because generativity I've always thought of as being a nice thing. You know, you're just looking out for people who, and it's not yeah. going to be of any benefit to you. But um, maybe I'm getting well, into the Well, but why is that, a, death, why would that know. be a problem? Why would that be a problem? Uh, Charles, I mean, if uh, your ego is obviously always there, at least according to Freud and Erickson is Freud's students, so obviously he would think about those type of things. So it's, it is an ego protect, 
protection mechanism. Well, I mean, it's a one way to yeah. one way to sort of use your ego to help others. Uh, maybe mm. that's one way, a positive way to think about it. But I don't think uh, in general. I mean, you're right, uh, and that may be also our, our cultural bias, where we are so concerned with the notion of an ego and protecting this ego and like making it feel good, like a, a culture of hedonism to some extent too. Mm. But uh, that's me being cynical now. Oh, it's spreading. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's spreading. That's yeah. right. But. Um, but I think there is nothing wrong with that. I mean, the, the, of course, that opens a whole can of worms in terms of, well, when we think about sort of uh, being pro-social or uh, generative uh, in Ericsson's terms, is it really, really altruistic in the sense that there is no personal benefit or is there some personal benefit? And that's a question that even the top scientists studying altruism and pro-sociality still uh, debate. Mm. And um, I think uh, from my perspective, I think who cares as long as it helps other people. So I'm a much more utilitarian in that sense, like uh, from that philosophical tradition. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the, the, is it true altruism? Is it true generativity because you don't care about yourself at all? Or is it that you, it, uh, this motivation to help others starts to emerge because that's how you feel you will um, sort of live longer in the minds of other people? Yeah. And I suppose you're saying, does it really matter? Especially if you're looking yeah, exactly. at from this, uh, the, if you worry less about the individual and you look at the group, then it, it's just another mechanism by which the group can, you know, be sustained. So it doesn't really matter where it comes that's from. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that would be my my sense. But I mean, one thing that I uh, uh, to to bring back the discussion back to the idea of experience is when we when I said like leaders or mentors, like in the workplace, for instance, I think that's where the notion of generativity also kicks in. Sort of when you sort of you you put yourself in a position where you have others whom you are responsible for, and that totally changes your perspective on life. It's like just to get, and in fact, it goes in a different direction. I mean, and this is just maybe my personal example, but when I got my first graduate students at the university whom I was responsible for, and it was not just about me and my self-protection, but it was about this other uh almost the same age, actually, but slightly younger kids, then suddenly my whole perspective shifted. And I started thinking very, very different. It was a cardinal shift. I really sensed it. Mm. Uh, and it was not because I wanted to, you know, like live longer in any way <laughs> through them. Yeah, That idea didn't come to my mind at all. Rather, it was really that you start engaging with any questions, like same sort of because, you know, like you, you publish, your students publish, you do research, your students do research with you, but the emphasis is not on you anymore. And because the emphasis is not on you anymore, you start engaging with the, uh, with the same possibly, possibly the same tasks very, very differently. And you try to explain things to them. Um, uh, so um, I'm not sure if it's like my ego was really that, I mean, I think it was activated when the, somebody started talking badly for instance about my students instead yeah. defending them yeah. you know like that uh, sounds like but, an attack on an ego almost uh well yeah but not my personal ego right yeah 
But anyway, so what I'm trying to say is that that's where this kind of uh, over time, uh, this uh, uh, engagement, uh, being a mentor, for instance, uh, could potentially have uh, consequences for development of wisdom uh, in, in, a, in a similar way how Erickson talked about generativity. Yeah. Um, it, I'm going to just throw a little something in there that we could perhaps come back to in a future episode. But this, mm-hmm. um, this idea of your interests um, becoming aligned with sort of interests of others, or, you know, your students, it, you all, I've read a lot um, about people saying that, you know, if, if you lead, read these things in the newspapers, you know, 10 ways to be happy, you know, in 10 quick steps, uh, which always fascinating. One of them is always something along the lines of um, buying into something, an idea that's bigger than yourself, you know, which is quite interesting, um, you know, which leads into religions and political parties and all this kind of thing. So, on the one hand, we think that we're purely selfish and we would, you know, it, it would seem to be most sensible for us to try and gather as many resources for our own individual gains. But then this always comes up, this idea that, well, in fact, what what might be helpful is thinking differently and thinking about um, aligning yourself with just something beyond just you, which I've always thought of that in big terms, grand terms about, you know, like I say, politics and religion, but yeah. what you're talking about there, even just having a few students that are kind of, uh, you're now interested in their development, sounds like a tiny micro version of the same thing, potentially. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue there is also, you know, it's it, uh, this kind of shift in perspective uh, that you experience or maybe in exposed to because you have students or uh, for various other reasons uh, that shakes you up. So like you, you, you were sort of like going with a sort of like a particular way uh, to approach the world and you had a certain set of view on various problems and suddenly there's kind of this oh moment mm. and you realize, oh, actually, wait a second. What about if I look at it from this perspective? But let's turn back to the topic of aging and wisdom because I think there's one uh, or a few more things that we may want to discuss. And Mm. one of them is we talked about sort of Erickson, we talked about uh, gains and losses and sort of how Erickson's theory was to some extent about wisdom by navigating these gains and losses that happened in old age. But one idea that we did not discuss yet, and then again, turning to the negative, like it's me being the Russian here, uh, a Russian Canadian. um, So is this idea of losses and how people, when they get to the old age, maybe experiencing losses and uh, maybe afraid of having those losses. And there's just this feeling of being afraid that you actually may be viewed as an older person uh, by itself can uh, affect uh, your performance and uh, lead you on the path of a, a sort of, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy mm. where you would uh, uh, suddenly perform worse on the task just because people think that you're old and all the adults don't do well on this task. Right. I've heard about this in terms of um, uh, black Americans, I think, doing tests when they're the only black American in the group and then the rest of them are white. And, and they'll that. So it's underlined that they are of a dif- different ethnic group and that will have an impact on how well they do on certain academic tests. Um, right. So, so, so called a stereotype threat. I mean, 
actually, to be entirely honest, a little bit contentious right now right. how robust this effect okay. is. There is, a, a, for instance, a stereotype threat in math that, uh, that women yeah. don't perform as well in math. Um, it seems to be so culture specific that uh, most people can uh, uh, trying to find that in Western Europe can't even observe this effect. It was like, uh-huh. for instance, in the Netherlands. And to be honest, like growing up in Eastern Europe, where I was the only boy in a math club in in middle school, and uh, and uh, ten other members were all girls. Right. I, I would have laughed if you would have told me that there is a stereotype threat that yeah. women don't perform as well in math. This and sounds that was yeah, certainly really not cultural, cultural. It's very culture, yeah. and I think like certainly say with uh, the black Americans, um, uh, the experience of a. Um, of a of a person of African descent in the Caribbean uh, may be very very different uh, than the experience of the uh, in the United States and in Canada uh, uh, as well as in Britain I think that so it's, it's very very culturally uh, saturated uh, but the aging one I think in many ways is uh, um, something that we find everywhere right like there are losses there are obvious losses and we have people around us who uh, are older and may not perform as well there may be you know like the health uh, uh, related reasons for that and so like to be a, be stereotyped as an older adult may by itself force you to behave in a in a stereotype consistent manner prevent you from reaching your uh, peak potential that you would otherwise be able to so, so that's so another that thing would, that would, on a practical level that would sort of suggest that if you can counteract feeling the effect of this that stereotype threat then you your performance would increase or improve that's right i yeah. mean that would be my sense i mean the, and then maybe then you know like it can maybe all the adults actually are wise in many ways but whenever they are measured and thought that they're measured because they're older uh, uh then uh, they don't perform as well. Like even on the, on, uh, for instance, like some of the studies that were done with older adults were done in a very sterile environment where they were brought in for the whole day of testing. And the first is a physical test. And uh huh, okay, that's how you can run. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. How about your breathing? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Now, wonderful. Now, uh, please go into this very sterile room where there will be no interaction. There's just a microphone in the middle of a room. And now start talking because we want to know how good you reason. I was like, come on. Like when you do a task like that, of course, and I'm exaggerating, of course, but that would be an example of where the person would be very well aware that first of all, they're studied like a rat. Yeah. Or, uh, and, and then, and then that they are studying aging, right? Yeah. And, and, they, and uh, they start by studying something that is everyone knows that they're going to be poor at if they're studying their physical that's performance. Right. Yeah. That's right. Mm. And so then they, they, they may not even try as hard. They may not be as motivated or maybe they are very motivated, but that's not the context. I mean, I'm a social psychologist. I have to bring up the notion of context. Yeah, that's your job. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, um, that, that is not the age-appropriate context. So if you put them in the environment in which they have to solve abstract problems without having an interaction, whereas in everyday life, all the adults in the last 10 years, like let's say they retired, but now they're like, they don't deal with this kind of highly abstract problems. And instead of that, they deal with more concrete tasks. They interact with people, they face to face, instead of, uh, you know, sitting in some cubicles or um, um, uh, like like college students would and uh, trying yeah. to prep for exams. That's interesting. And then of course, they will not perform yeah, well. Because- because um, what you're suggesting is to get 
reliable, meaningful data out of that, you would actually need to treat different subjects slightly differently, which also sounds kind of non-scientific in a way, because, you know, you'd think, well, everyone needs to be in the same environment to ensure that you're, you know, that is not a variable. But what you're actually saying is really to get a fair test of these people, you need to put them in, you know, young people and old people, you need to put them and test them in slightly different environments. Well, I think, I mean, that, and that may be the difference between physics and social science is mm -hmm. that you actually have to know more about mm -hmm. the environments. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is part of the developing, uh, not just fair, but uh, ecologically valid uh, mm -hmm. procedure for mm -hmm. testing the participants. There's so many ways that um, social psychology is so much harder than physics <laughs> because phys you know physics if you're looking at an electron or a positron or something it will always do the same thing um and right. every single electron will behave in every in exactly the same way every time you, you put it in a certain environment uh whereas even in quantum mechanics well that you get now you get a probability <laughs> range absolutely yeah um but you get the same profile of where they okay, could be okay, in the cloud fair, density etc but you, you're dealing with completely individual it's imagine it's like every single electron has a different personality that's that's the problem you're facing <laughs> Well, I wouldn't exaggerate. I think there are still rules of probability and uh, like central limit theorem apply right. to social sciences too, yeah. right? Uh, it's just that it uh, it's fairly complex because you cannot, in part for ethical reasons, isolate a lot of these effects in a similar way how you would do it in physics. Yeah, We are dealing with complex org organisms rather than uh, singular electrons. So yeah. that's why it, it is tricky. It's very tricky. It's a tough job. I have one last point to make. Sure. Which is, um, is, is what I like about the question of aging is that it's someone, it's something that everyone does. So it's, it's a universal challenge. And it seems that it's lots of aspects of it are negative. And it's interesting that whether or to ask ourselves the question, does, does this process that is forced on all of us, you know, regardless, rich, poor, you know, any, all nations, every human on the planet has to go through this process. Um, but it seems, it seems almost like an ideal vehicle to trigger something like the development of wisdom, because you're having to um, let things go and you're having to develop humility. Um, and that process of becoming, you know, physically weaker, etc. although it, none of us would choose it, it does seem like a, a, a very, um, potentially profitable mechanism for developing something like wisdom. Um, so it's, it seems like wisdom could be a framework for turning something negative like aging into something positive. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as we discussed, the key thing here is to figure out what are the conditions under which this maximum adversity, as I would call it, like fear of uh, uh, like losing it. And under what conditions does this maximum adversity promote wisdom? And under what conditions does it ma just make somebody bitter? Terrified. And uh, maybe terrified, traumatized, and all that stuff. So it's a, and that's sort of the ongoing research that we don't, we really don't know answers to this question. Well, there are a lot of theoretical models, mm. and there are a lot of the this cross-sectional studies just comparing young and old adults. But as we already discussed, there are a lot of problems with doing that. So you really need to track people over time when they go through difficult experiences and try to figure out under what circumstances are they able to learn from these experiences, show some wisdom, and under what context they're not. Now, the ultimate threat, of course, 
is the threat of death, right? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think there's no escaping death. And and it's, again, it's something that unites us because we all have to... um, That's that's the end of the road for everyone. That's right. And so that's actually what our next episode will be about. The question of wisdom and death. Yes. And um, uh, that's a very exciting thing. Um, uh, heavy, heavy topic. Yeah, <laughs> I, we probably um, we need to maybe. Um, yeah, I don't. Wanna, we're not going to scare people off, are we? People will come back for that, won't they, Eagle? Well, I, I think people are interested in death yeah. as much as they are afraid of it. Yeah, we'll have a an expert specialist, Laura Blackie from Nottingham uh, in the UK. Uh, she will try to help us understand the relationship between death and wisdom. Now, this is the end of this episode. So I think I think we're done for this week. We're done. We're still learning mm-hmm. and we are, are trying to improve. But if you enjoyed this, please help us to get this out to more people by rating us on iTunes. And if you like this, please continue listening. Next week, we'll talk about wisdom and death. 